This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is David Park. Uh, I hope you are all here for the session, The Rise of the Citizen Data Scientist. Uh, if not, uh, you probably have time to get to your right room. Um, the, I'll be chairing the session today. Uh, our speakers are Pravin Burra and FC DeFoss, both from Analytics Engine. Um, the, the, the talk today uh, is a, it's a data science talk, talking about the, the rise of the, the citizen data scientist. Um, as someone who works in uh, data science, um, I often get the question, particularly from young actuaries, um, on how they can actually get started on data science and start to use it in their day-to-day -day, uh, jobs. Um, and I think this presentation will give us a really good framework and process on how to make this a reality. Um, but as importantly, I think it also addresses the broader question on how organizations can set them up, themselves up to be much more successful at identifying where data science can be used to solve problems in their business, um, and then to actually build a workable solution. Um, there was a recent MIT Sloan uh, Management Review and BCG survey, which said that, that although 93% of executives worldwide uh, expect to get value from AI, um, of those who had actually made investments in AI, AI, AI over the last few years, 63% uh, of them, sorry, 65% of them hadn't seen a return on their investment. Um, and hopefully this presentation will get to get people thinking about how we can actually turn that stat around. So I'll pass over to our speakers. Thank you, David. Good afternoon, everyone. And hopefully we help some of you not be in that sort of 95% who just chuck money at AI. But uh, let's just give these guys a minute. Okay, perfect. So just in the interest of public liability, I'm Praveen and that's FC. <laughs> Just a little bit about us. Um, I think we, we're both actuaries by training, but we're both passionate about a couple of things, um, data, analytics, and technology. And I think that the, the combination of the three is quite important. Um, between us, we've been working for too long. You think we'd have made enough money by now. Um, but we've been working in analytics for a long time. We've done a lot of non-statutory work. I still regard it as actuarial work, interestingly enough, because I think the framework from actuarial applied to analytics is where the value lies. So I don't regard it as wider fields. I regard it as actually application of actuarial techniques in my mind. Um, we formed our own business last year to do analytics. Um, for myself, I was just glad to not spend as many hours in meetings. And we're passionate about doing work that we enjoy and we love. And, and we're fortunate in the sense that we actually love our jobs. Some of the interesting things we've done over the last two years in terms of non-standard work, if I call it that, or, or emerging work, we've done some telematics work tracking vehicles and trying to plot correlations between driving behavior and accidents. Um, we've done some sentiment work looking at um, analyzing emails that go into an insurance client contact center and looking at what we can learn from that. 
And we've done quite a lot of work around customer behavior, understanding churn, understanding who might buy products, etc. So just in terms of the range of use cases that we've been involved in. Probably one of the things that struck me over the many years that we've been working is that the problems facing large companies tend to be very similar. The output is not the same, and that there are large differences in cadence between companies. And the question then arises, what are some companies doing and getting right, and what are some companies not doing, and therefore not getting it right? Because the problems are relatively universal. And hopefully we touch on that a little bit as we proceed. Okay, so if we look at the value of AI, and we've all seen this data with the new oil, analytics, AI, blockchain, pick a buzzword and it's worth a lot. Um, if we look at Forrester, they did a survey and they estimated that by next year, by 2020, this was a, a 2017 survey, by 2020, they estimated that $1.2 trillion of value would be worn by advanced analytics companies as opposed to those that aren't. And we can argue about the quantum of the number. Let's just settle on the fact that it's big. Um, if we want South African use cases, and I'll quote two um, analytics, two companies locally that are well known for analytics. If we look at Discovery, they've invested a lot in analytics over the years. If you actually look at the number of customers they have on their customer base compared to the rest of the healthcare industry, managed care industry uh, combined, they compare very favorably. Um, the other company I'd like to point to is Firstrand. Um, if you look at Firstrand's revenue per customer compared to that of the other banks, they compare very favorably. So we have two use cases in South Africa where companies have been able to invest in analytics and get good returns. The important thing is to decide what your good return is and how do you go about actually getting value at an enterprise level. Very importantly, to Dave's point, you are going to have to invest, but if you invest wisely, hopefully you waste less. Okay, so when we think about analytics, we immediately jump to the big companies. And it's the usual suspects, Facebook, Amazon, Uber, Google, Netflix, Apple. And we think about them as having the best of breed and we can't compete and they've got 100 PhDs sitting in a back room. And they probably do, but the honest answer or the correct question is, do we need to compete with Google? Is Google your competition or is it the insurer down the road that's the competition? Is it your goal to be the next Google or is it your goal to give your customers great value? And so we need to think about how do we compete locally but also globally, right? We want our quality of analytics and the quality of value add from analytics to be globally competitive. So how do we invest that is punching appropriate to our weight or above our weight? Given we don't have an army of PhDs and given we don't have the budgets that they do and we have legacy systems that we have to work with. Okay, so if we look at a typical company today, what you've got is a large organization with lots of business problems, lots of those little holes, unmet need, and you've got a small overworked bunch of data scientists. Whether it's the statutory actuarial function, the pricing team, the marketing team, generally there's pockets of data scientists silos of excellence and not enough of them. And as a consequence of there not being not enough of them, you're doing not enough use cases or you're doing too many use cases and not able to put them into good production. And what we do is we create ripples in the pond, right? We do something, it has an effect, 
and three years later someone else does the same thing and has the same effect. We're not building on it, right? We're not building pyramids like the Egyptians. So the question is, how do we at an enterprise level, as opposed to just in pockets of excellence, deliver real value to move our organizations forward? And that's kind of the essence of what we're trying to talk to today. Okay, so if we look at these companies, we've only got a handful of data scientists. If you look at a percentage of headcount, it doesn't matter whether it's 10 or 100, you're still small relative to the total headcount of most large organizations. The question we have to ask is, what about the rest of the people working in those organizations and how do we turn them into analytical helpers? So we have clever CAs in finance, we have business analysts, we have people running business units, we have executives across the board. And to assume that none of them can become helpers on the analytical journey is criminal, right? So the question that we have to ask is, if we want to create cadence at an enterprise level, how do we leverage off all the bright people in our organization? The honest answer is our biggest competition is that people are doing analytics anyway. Whether they're doing it well or whether they're doing it effectively or whether they're doing it dangerously, the point is it's the current buzzword, every man and his dog is doing it. What we have to find is how do we leverage, how do we enable them and how do we harness them so that at an enterprise level, we leverage all the clever people to extract value. Okay, so if we look at what's changed over the last 10 years, thanks to our little pocket devices, the first thing is choice. And if we look at the employee in a company and I look at management level, they want to solve business problems and they want to decide what business problem to solve. So if you're solving an enterprise solution, there's like five enterprise projects and everyone else's need sits on the side. Every executive who has a KPI has his own wish list of problems he wants to solve. And he's, so he wants choice as to what problem he solves. And as his KPI changes, he's gonna to wanna to change what he wants to solve. He also wants to decide what data he wants to use. He doesn't want to wait for someone to go and collect data for him in six months time. He wants to choose the data set he wants to play with. He wants to choose the customer set that he wants to analyze and the customer segment that he really wants to understand. He's also used to self-service. We see self-service starting to get to what I would call a medium level rather than an advanced level. But most companies now have data cubes. You have visualization tools, tableaus, click views, uh, Power BI. So we're starting to get towards self-service BI. Why are we not getting towards self-service analytics in a responsible way? Very important, in a responsible way. But why are we not getting to self-service artificial intelligence? And then the other thing is instant gratification. When you want to order something, you stick out your cell phone, you do an online order, and it gets either posted to you or delivered in an, in an hour, depending on whether it's food or something that you're ordering. We're used to instant gratification. So why do we have to wait to solve analytical problems in an organization? And yes, there's some we can't solve immediately, but there's a lot that we can solve quite quickly. That's from the employee and the management's perspective. If we look at the enterprise as a company, what do they really want to do? They want to maximize business value. And what does that mean in practice? It means they want to investigate as many opportunities as possible. Explore as many analytical use cases as possible as quickly as you can. The second thing is, if a use case, an experiment, an analytical task is successful, if it shows lift, how do we actually plug it into production so that it gets used? All too often I chat to youngsters, getting a bit old now, um, who, who tell me that they one of the biggest frustrations is they do all this great work and nobody solves it. And if you talk to a finance director, he'll tell you the opposite. We've got all these bright people and yet I still have all these problems that are unsolved. So one of the things we've got to get in the organization is the ability to take an experiment, an analytical use case, complete it, but then when it's completed, get it actioned, very importantly, put into use. 
And then the other one, companies need to manage risk, right? You've got duties as directors, etc. So you have to have governance. It's not the Wild West. Um, and the second thing is you have to have controls because without controls, you spend lots of time sticking tape, which limits the number of use cases you can do. Okay, so now if you want to scale data science, what are the skill sets of a good data scientist? You need domain expertise. So most of the people in this room being traditionally actuarial trained, we have deep domain knowledge in pensions, life insurance, short-term insurance, banking now, healthcare. But when it comes to other things, if you're in the marketing team, if you work for a manufacturing company, um, if you work for a retail company, a telco, you need deep, deep domain knowledge. And deep domain knowledge means if you're helping a call center to optimize calls, you have call center knowledge. And that only comes from management in that business line. You need programming skills because at the end of the day, if you're going to churn through big data, you're going to have to program something. So you need programming skills and then maths and stats. The nice thing for me is that actuaries probably have the best average of all of those combined. If you look at execs and management across different trainings, um, I'd say actuaries are probably the best average. Um, we've got, we, we touch on all, all of them more than most other professions. How it, the, sorry, just one quick thing. If you're looking for all of those skills in one person, it's a bit like the unicorn there. They're hard to find. And, and that's the challenge, right? If you're looking for one person who has domain knowledge, can solve business problems from first principles, can, has programming skills and mathematical skills, you're really going to battle to find them. The important thing of that is you've got to have teams. You've got to create a culture where people across domains can work easily together, learn how to work together, that they speak the same language, so that they can actually bring the entire skill set together. And again, having all of that skill set is wonderful, but in order to really use it at scale, you've got to have data. And companies in general, in my experience, have more data than they give themselves credit for. The challenge is usually it's harder to use that data than they give themselves credit for. So actually being able to, having the data is wonderful. Being able to actually use it meaningfully is harder than you think. Um, and then having the right technology. So having enough space to be able to join large data sets might sound straightforward. It's not if you don't have the space, being able to process things fast enough, um, having enough sand pits so that your analysts can run and not break things. Um, it's basics, it's hygiene, but it's important. So having the right technology matters a lot. Okay, so if you really want to solve this in your organization, what are foundational elements that you need to focus on? The first one is a quality data layer. And a quality data layer does not mean a perfect data layer. It just means a quality data layer. And it's a journey, right? It's not something you're going to plug in one day. So high concurrency, high concurrency just means lots of people can use it at the same time. Um, and most SQL servers now actually have this capability. Um, structured data cubes. So basically the data that you have underlying your Tableau and your ClickView and your busy BI dashboards, etc. Make that data available for analytics because it's there, people are familiar with it, they know where it comes from, they understand it, if they've been using it, they know its weaknesses. Make it available. The second one is ability to play with unstructured data. Unstructured data like photo editing, video editing, voice editing and a whole bunch of other things are really cool. Realistically, you don't know what you need until you need it. When you find a business problem, play with it and try and solve that business problem and then buy the tech after you know what the business problem is that you're going to solve. Because the tech around especially big data and unstructured data is quite unique depending on the use case. So my advice is don't go and try and solve for everything on day one. 
clear some kind of guidance around how you can play with cloud with anonymized data to try and just experiment a little bit with the use case. Once you figure out what use case you want to solve, then go and buy your unstructured data tech. Um, and then a data provisioning tool. A data provisioning tool. Um, last year, we did a piece of work with, with one of the large corporates, and we were really blown away by how quickly the analytics team could extract data from their legacy systems. And it was simply because they had a tool which could connect to most data sources. So, and it could then pull the data set from there, put it there, transform it if you needed to. And the ability to do that is actually quite important. So having a tool that allows you to connect to your, your legacy silos of data is quite important. If you look at most companies, I worked in a bank, probably a small proportion of the organization's total data sits in the data warehouse. A lot of it sits in other data warehouses. Um, other computers, other servers. And so if you're going to do analytics, you're going to need to access that data. Having a tool that allows you to provision data is very important. The next one is use case capability. And, and, and I kind of call it capability intentionally. You don't know what problem you're going to solve, but you want a pattern of work. You want a tool that allows you to pull your provision data. You want an analytical toolkit that lets you experiment. And you want a workflow process that allows you to combine people from data, business, and IT so that they can come together, solve or something, and then ultimately take it to a governance process so that it can be approved to be plugged in because it's still not the wild west. But you want everyone to experiment. You want to turn everyone into the organization into a helper to find value. So you want an upskilled community of bright people in the organization. You want to teach people how to define an outcome variable. Um, you want to teach people how to read a gains chart. Um, you don't, they don't need to understand all the stats behind it. That's why you have your super users who will review a use case before it goes into production. And then very importantly, production. All too often, I, I, I see companies running wonderful, sexy use cases. You'll have a uh, best of breed IT house will fly out from Silicon Valley and they'll show you wonderful, cool toys and they'll come and run a three month use case and you'll, everyone will be really chuffed. And then someone will see the bill of what it costs to actually plug this thing in and then they'll say, oh no, maybe next year. And the question is, why do you go through all that pain first without asking the cost of implementation afterwards? So you need to have a procedure to say, what use case do I want to solve? If it works, how am I going to plug it in? What is my budget to plug it in upfront? You've got to know how you're going to put stuff into production. And putting stuff into production is a data in production, an IT process in production, but also a business workflow in production. That goes all the way down to if you're giving screens to people in a call center, how do they read the screen? Training and change management. So having an ease of a rollout pattern and a standard rollout pattern at enterprise level is quite important. Politics of success, very important. This is where things come unhinged. The first one is to have the right people in the room. As we said earlier, if you look for unicorns, they're fairly rare. You need to get the right people into the room. Typically, the people you want is business, IT, and the quants. Business is critical, and, and often I think we as quants undervalue business um, as they undervalue us. Um, it's, it's very important because they tell you what problem to solve because it matters to their KPIs they're going to fight for the value to be recognized because it goes to their KPIs. They're going to fund the team and the IT cost and the software that you want to buy. And very importantly, if it's successful, they are the people who are going to run the change management to make sure it gets plugged in. So business needs to become your best friend. The second one is to identify a process to target. You can't solve everything. The smaller the process, the more critical the the use case that you're trying to solve, the more likely you are to get to success. And success at, at, at this stage is we tested it, it works, it doesn't work. There's nothing wrong with running an experiment and the experiment doesn't work. You've got to raise a culture in your organization that we experiment fast, 
We learn things that work. We also learn things that don't work, and that's great. Agree on the measurement of value. So for example, in a previous life, I worked a lot in marketing analytics. And if you look at what is a sale, you think a sale is pretty straightforward. In the call center, it's I spoke to the customer and he said yes. Um, in finance, it, in, in the product house, it's the customer actually opened the policy or the bank account. In finance, it's the customer actually paid his premium. And those three definitions are not the same. So agreeing upfront on what success looks like is quite important. It's also important to know how much you're willing to invest in that success so that you don't take use cases forever. You've got to have a, a, sh a short period of time, typically between one and four months, when you can experiment and say this works or doesn't work. Um, then also upfront, you want to understand if this works, who's going to plug it in? Who's going to own it afterwards? Who's going to do the change management? So if you answer that question upfront, you don't finish something, a cool model that nobody then runs with. And then budget, because everything costs money and corporates are great at cross-charge. So everything needs to be cross-charged. In thinking about budget, you need to think about it in three levels. The first one is the POC. So if you're going to run an experiment, who's free to be on that experiment? Are you actually able to pull them away from their day jobs in terms of time cost? But also, who's going to pay for license fees? Who's going to pay for the IT? So think about the cost of the experiment. The second one is if the experiment is successful, there's change management to actually plug it in. So for example, you might have IT costs to build screens, um, IT production costs, etc. And then the third cost is after you've plugged it in, what's the cost of running? Because that also matters in terms of the business case. So whenever you're thinking about budgets for an analytical use case, think about it in three steps. The cost of the experiment, the cost of implementing, and the cost of saving thereafter or operating thereafter. Because that's ultimately what you'd need to get approved and funded in, in order to get a use case properly plugged in. Okay, so much for the theory. Um, FC will now talk us through a couple of actual practical applications just to make it real. Cool. Thanks, Prav. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk through a couple of the more practical applications. As Pravin mentioned earlier, you've got everyone and his dog doing analytics at the moment. You've got people from with heavy IT backgrounds through to engineers, actuaries, statisticians. Everybody's saying they're doing data science, right? There's no uh, stamp of approval or practicing certificate saying you're a data scientist now. And uh, from our perspective, it was, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I was getting worked up about this a while ago. Um, and Pravin and I were trying to console ourselves about why we went through the actuarial training route uh, if we ended up here, right? Because I, I don't know about you guys, but I took a little bit more of the scenic route to qualification. Um, so <laughs> so, so it, it took a while for us to get a hang around why are actuaries useful in this compared to what the roles of everybody else are. And the only way we could reconcile ourselves was when we split it into three components, right? So um, the first component here we wanted to call discovery, but now that name was taken, so we'll call it exploration for now. And then the second one is around a filtration process around your exploration of, of the data, and the last one's production. So. The, and the actuary's role is to support an organization through each one of these three steps, right? So your exploration is generally what's your business problem, and I'll go through the exploration stuff in a lot of detail just now, because that's effectively what you want your citizen data scientists to do. You don't really want them playing around in the filtration and the production space, but you do want them to be able to explore their data. So that involves taking a business problem, let's say, uh, we're losing a lot of our customers, or we're having a lot of defaults, or we have a lot of claims, right? So that'll be one of your business problems. 
then you'll define a variable that represents that business problem. Let's say um, how many of our customers stop using our credit card, right? And then you define a specific variable there. What data do you have that can solve that problem? And then running through the algorithm. And there's a role for the citizen data scientists in there, but they have to be supported by a very uh, deep specialist that Praveen mentioned, those three people in the big round block at the bottom. Then your second step is the filtration step. So there, I believe, actuaries are very well placed, right? Um, a lot of people can do this kind of work, but we, we've got certain skills that help us a lot in there. So the first is, you know if a model will generalize well. When somebody draws you a return cur a ROC curve or a lift chart, you actually know what you're looking at. And the second one is we get taught a lot about ethics, right? So, and, uh, and I'm sure it was tedious going through all of your guidance notes and all of that stuff, but it really actually taught us that there's a principle behind the ethics that you need to follow. So an example of people who've got that wrong is, face I don't know, does everybody know about the whole Facebook issue with the recruitment AI engine that they built? Anyway, so Facebook used historic data to try and predict who they thought would be successful employees. Unfortunately, Facebook had historically employed a lot of men, and then it turned out that they then trained their model to be sexist. So from an actuarial perspective, you have to be really careful around those ethics, right? There are a couple of governance issues we get taught as we go along about making sure you've got peer review in place and all of those things. So I believe actuaries are very well placed in that process and in terms of completing your actuarial control cycle, right, you've got your production process. We have to make sure that your model actually keeps running the way that you thought it was going to be running. Because I don't know how many of you are here that, that it's using data from a piece of code that was written about 10 years ago and you're hoping that it's still right. But that's definitely happened to me. Cool. So remember, we're focusing on a citizen data scientist and how we as actuaries can support the citizen data scientist in the exploration role, right? So the first piece there is you need to define your business problem, right? So um, th there are a whole suites of them we can consider. There is uh, the one I like using is churn, right? We're losing a lot of customers. So the second step that we'll then do is what do we define as losing a customer? And, and, and this is very important, and you're going to have to support your, your citizen data scientist in this, right? So are we saying that it's the day that the account closes? Because that's too late, right? The guys already, or the ladies, just they've already decided to close their account. Um, is it when somebody stops using the account? Is it when the utilization is zero? So, so they, they, you have to guide people through that step about choosing what actually accurately represents the business problem that they're trying to solve. The third step that you're looking at is what data can you use to solve that problem? So specifically things like making sure that your data is available when you're making the prediction, uh, making sure that you can actually update the data, those kinds of things you're gonna have to guide people with. Because a business user will just go, oh, we've got everybody's transactional data so we know exactly what they've been spending their money on. Well, yes, but it's not nicely classified into I'm spending money at Woolworths, right? So, so those kinds of things you'd have to help them with. And then finally, there's the actual the process of running your machine learning algorithm or your linear regression, whichever one you choose. So I'm going to go through an example, and I owe these, uh, this company quite a lot because I've used their data, site, data set quite often because they live to have it for free, which is great. So Lending Club is a peer-to-peer -peer lender online, right? So. I'll go to Lending Club and I'll say, I need a new business loan. Praveen and I started a, uh, a business recently and a new business loan would be nice. 
Um, so we, we've, I go on there and I say, I want a loan. And David goes onto the website and he sees FC and he decides either FC is a good risk or a bad risk, but he doesn't know. So he wants to now decide, do I want to lend FC this money or not, right? So that is our business problem. Is it worth lending the money to FC or not? So our next step is choosing our target variable. Effectively, we're trying to see, based on David's risk appetite, do we want to lend this money to FC? So um, we want to get a certain probability that FC is going to default. You don't want a high probability of default, even though the interest rate will be high. Maybe he feels like the um, the return on the low risk one is, is too low. So maybe somewhere between the blue and the red is where he wants to lend. But we have to find a way of actually determining whether FC falls in that bracket or not. Cool, so you get a data set. Um, and generally, data sets will have a whole bunch of different types of data, right? So we want to interpret all of this. You'll have, for example, your loan amount is $5,000. And then your interest rate is 15%. Now, you can see there's already some slight differences in the data that you're putting in there. Your employer title, I decided I worked for Nando's for this piece, uh, mostly because I like the adverts. And then uh, I've put uh, an annual income figure down there. So what you'll notice is there's quite a few different types of information there. And my one comment there is data is never this clean, never. Um, but effectively, you're gonna try and use data like that to determine whether my loan is going to go bad or not, right? So that is, you generally end up with a data set like this. Now, um, We've, uh, I've just chosen a specific tool that en enables the citizen data scientists. The tool is called Data Robot. It was started by two actuaries um, because I like the way that they set out the workflow about how it works from start to finish. And, it, and it's a nice way of saying how actuaries can support people during each one of these steps. So um, in terms of uploading data, so d generally you will then take your data set and you need to upload it into a specific tool, right? So. In SAS, you'll go to connect to your database. If it's one of, if for example, it's this one, you go and drag and your, your data set in, and any of these tools will give you some kind of an indication of what data you're looking at. So remember, we're enabling the citizen data scientists. So you want something that's gonna tell them about the data set that they've just uploaded. They will need, we will know that you need to check if how many of your values are missing, how many are negative and all of that stuff. But that, that is our case and we need to support people in that. And then hopefully your tool will do some kind of indication of what those data things are. So they'll tell them how many missing values they have and all, all of that stuff. So support them to make sure that they don't have crazy weird data sets. The second step is to do the actual run. So most of these tools, and I'm showing data robots here, but you get, you get the same experience if you run um, H2O or some of the SAS tools and so on. So it's the actual machine learning algorithms have gotten a lot easier to actually run. What your goal is, is to be able to tell them that yes, they have to choose the right target variable. So that is bad target variable that we're going for. And then you have to tell them about sort of different steps. So hopefully your program will tell them about splitting your data sets into training and testing sets. And, 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 your, and, and your job is to make sure that they follow the right steps there. Because I've seen a lot of times where somebody's told me that their model's amazingly accurate and then they measured their training sets accuracy against itself. So just, just be careful of that and help people through those steps. Um, so all of these tools will have different types of models that you can use. Um, so TensorFlow, so your, your neural nets and your 
rule classifiers, your Python models, your R models, your SAS models, all of these things then are, to, to be honest, to a large extent, actually automated right now. And it's just your, your role there is to be able to tell them which models have which advantages and disadvantages. So um, if you're looking at an ensemble model, you know they're slightly less interpretable than, than let's say, a dis decision tree, right? So our, our goal is to help them through those steps. The next thing is when you are building your model, you want to help people to make sure that they're following the right steps during the actual modeling phase. So when you have a categorical value variable, let's say uh, that has uh, three stages, for example, you have your, your fine, your, your loan's current, your in default, or you've completely gone off the rails, then you'll have one column for each one of those and a ones and zeros in each one of them because a machine learning algorithm needs them to be numbers, not categories, right? So there's just certain steps like that and imputing missing values that you need to make sure that your citizen data scientist follows when they're building these. Some of the tools will have them included, some of them won't. Then you have to help them around the whole measuring the accuracy of what you're looking at, right? So. A citizen data scientist will see a measure of accuracy and they won't be able to tell the difference between recall and precision. And they won't understand that, for example, the way of interpreting your confusion matrix, it's very different if you're looking at a fraud use case versus if you're looking at a propensity to purchase use case, right? So your actual business reasons for doing things in certain ways, they'll help have to get an actuary to help with them. Or a data scientist, but I just feel like actuaries are pretty good at this. Um, and now I'm going to go off on a little side passion of mine <laughs> because this question comes up all the time. Um, and it's around the interpretability of machine learning algorithms. Um, there's a belief that uh, a linear regression is very interpretable and that's why a lot of people use them and they feel like machine learning algorithms are a black box. I don't believe that, or, or I believe they're equally interpretable, right? So uh, I'm just gonna go through three different steps that just show that these models are actually interpretable. So on the first one is you can actually tell what your most important variables are on a global basis. So in terms of this data set, um, I can see the int rate or interest rate is rated at 100%, right? So that's the most important variable for us to predict your actual outcome. That means effectively that their pricing model's working, right? So Lending Club has a model that tries to, uh, that prices your loan. And it seems to be working, then the state that you're working in and the purpose to which you're put, uh, putting it. If you go into a little bit more detail, unfortunately starting a small business seems to be quite a risky thing to do, um, much to prevent in my dismay. <laughs> um, Cool, so then, so let's go one further step down, right? So just to show that you can, so there we just saw what's most important, what's, what's not so important. What you can then see is the directional importance of different things, right? So um, what we're looking at here, right, is your red blocks are very high probability of defaulting, your blue box blocks are very low probability of defaulting, and what factors make that up, right? So if you're looking at your high probability of defaulting, so the ones where your prediction, that number is red, right? You will see that you've got your subgrade there is F1, I don't know if it's showing well on the screen, but that is a very low risk rating. Your interest rate there on some of those are 21 and 22%, so they're very high elements, and you can determine by looking at it to see what really impacts your high probability of default. Conversely, on the low risk side, you've got low interest rates, high risk grades. 
So it can be interpreted. And then if we're bringing this back to our original question, right? Can we see if FC is a good risk or not, right? So your citizen data scientists can then say on an individual basis, right? Can we interpret what we're looking at? So I remember we said that it's 11% and I know I've got Greg at the top there. I was, uh, that was a different, slightly different video, but you can see my probability to default is 11%. The things that make me higher risk of defaulting is that I didn't put my employer's title down, um, that my interest rate was at around about 12% and so on. Um, and the things that have given me a lower probability of default, or it's, I took a shorter term loan um, and I haven't utilized quite a lot of it. So if we now bring this back, remember we were just talking about the expiration phase and the actuary's role in that phase, right? Where there are still the other two phases that you need to take into account. And um, from this, we always get asked, where do I start? A lot of actuaries ask us, where do we start um, citizen data scientists and so on? So I've just put data robot down in this first because if you want to get through the right workflow, it's a very nice place to just look through their videos and see, yes, I've got my framework right. Uh, I personally like Kaggle. Kaggle is an online platform that allowed data scientists to compete for prizes. So companies will put up a business problem and groups of people will compete for these prizes and then you get an actual monetary reward on it. It's actually evolved quite a lot as a nice platform to talk to people on to get um, data sets to play with. And there are lots of tutorials on there as well. If you need to code, Stack Overflow is your answer. If you've got a dumb question, don't worry. Somebody's got that exa exact same dumb question asked with an answer. And then um, we all get asked quite often about uh, different online courses, which ones we like for data science and so on. I've just listed the one that I particularly like, uh, obviously ourselves, Analytics Engine. If you'd like to give us a shot, then please do so. Uh, then one thing here, actuaries, you've got some of the best data in the organization. I know it doesn't feel like it, but compared to what the rest of the organization is sitting with, risk and finance tend to sit with a very, very good data set. So take your data that you've got already and see if you can make something of it. And then you can look at the, the online platforms and their advantages are obviously it's very cheap. As long as you anonymize your data, you should be okay. Uh, I like Google Cloud Platforms, one is the simplest of the three, but you've got Google Cloud Platform, Amazon SageMaker, and Microsoft Azure's Cognitive Services, and it largely depends on what your organization is going for. Um, and now I'm just going to ask Praveen to just catch whatever I missed. Thanks, FC. I don't think you missed much. Um, just coming back to, so Mayushi Son is the head of SoftBank. And one of the things he said was, those who rule data will rule the entire world. And as we saw earlier with the estimate of $1.2 trillion being worn by companies that invest in data, the value of data is huge. The question I think that we need to define for our organizations is what does ruling data mean for us? Um, how do we use data actively every day, not just in silos of excellence, but enable the whole organization to help us to use that data? I think that's the challenge for us to actually win with data. And I think, uh, David, over to you. Any questions and comments and thoughts? Right, so uh, we're gonna open up the floor to questions. If you can uh, just say your name before you uh, ask your question so we know who you are. 
there are some roving mics, so we'll pass them around. Uh, got one in the front here. Uh, thanks, FCA, Proven. Um, it's Jan from Alice. Um, you mentioned in your Proven, in your um, f first few slides, scale. Scale is an issue. You know, with obviously ML, the nature of ML is exploratory. So you've got to like iterate through many examples, and so anything that feels quite simple becomes a challenge if you if you've got to scale it. Um, do you have any sort of real-world examples of where you came across the scale thing, and how did you solve it? When you're talking about scale, just to understand the question properly, are you talking about lots of data or scaling a solution across the enterprise? Just, um, I th it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily data, it's just a, the concept of um, something simple. For example, um, running one model is fine. You know, If you need to run a thousand of them, um, or you can extrapolate that to even to data as well, like pulling one ticker or one sort of price from a from a feed is simple, but doing 70,000 every hour or a half a million every okay. two hours becomes complex. Yeah, perfect. Happy to talk to that one, and FC, feel free to add it. Um, so it's actually a very good question, and it comes down to quality of production at the end of the day. And I'll, I'll maybe talk to two areas of scale. One is on the data extraction side, and the other is on running models. Um, if we look to data extraction, one of the biggest problems we have with models is not mathematics. Um, I think the quality of mathematics over the last 10 years has improved a lot. The bigger problem is actually clean production, which is what you're talking about at scale. Um, so if we look at the models that exist in, and FC spoke to a range of uh, software solutions from cloud to commercial vendors, all the models are free and available on the internet today. The difference between some of the commercial solutions and a build-it-yourself solution is obviously one is cost, but the other is that they come with workflow or they don't come with workflow. So if I start with the data example, um, we worked with a, a local insurer recently who had a tool for data extraction, which was basically a GUI, a, a graphical user interface. So you have a block that says, connect to a SQL database. You have a block that says, connect to a Hadoop database. You have a block that says, connect to a cloud database. And that cloud database has sub-blocks under it, whether your data sits on an Amazon cloud or a Google cloud or a Microsoft cloud. So the advantage of those types of tools is it lets the lay user connect to those data sources quite quickly. So if you want to extract data from a Hadoop stack, for example, and a lot of the South African companies have invested a lot in Hadoop stacks, you don't need to be a super programmer on Hadoop to be able to connect to the database and to extract the data. So you'll connect to it, you'll be able to see the data, um, you click on it and say, okay, I want that subtable and I want those columns. And again, it's a clickable, so you can see the, the columns and click the columns you want. Um, you can then transform them and say, um, transpose the table. Or um, if there's a missing value, um, put, in a null, put in a null or put in a zero or put in an average or leave it as is. All of those things exist as, let's call them macros. And so you can choose what you want to do. But once you've done it and you've played with it a few times because you're unlikely to have got it right the first time, so you'll change how you played with it. Once you've got the pattern of, let's call it, cut and paste blocks of the different steps you took, you can actually save it and you can name it and then you can pass it on to your IT team to put into production as a step. So the first thing in terms of scaling data is having a data extraction tool that lets you play with the data without having to learn how to program in every one of your databases, because most companies have lots of them from different vendors. The second thing is being able to take what you played with and put it into production. So I've played with it, these were the steps I did, 
I can now name it and save it so that I can recall it again, but very importantly, give it to the IT team who can then repeat those steps every month. Also, if you've got it named and saved as a template, the next time I want to do a project which is very similar that uses 80% of the same data, I can say copy that picture of data extraction and just make the minor changes. So when you're extracting data for 20 use cases, each use case has a very visual view of how you're extracting the data set and it's auditable. That's very important. And you can put it into a batch process or a run. When it comes to the models, it's pretty much the same thing. The models point to a data set and run a series of steps and output a series of results. Um, with the models, and if you look at the advanced uh, model manager tools, so for example, SAS, which a lot of the banks use in their regulatory risk space, have a tool called model manager. Um, what model manager does is it keeps a run log of every run that's done and the statistical results of every run. So for example, if you're running a logistic regression, it'll keep the R squared through your runs and will tell you when there's drift in those R squares. So if you're running it every month, the software automatically tracks your goodness of fit measures and tells you when the, when the, when the model fails. Often, depending on the, the vendor you go with, and, and there's nothing wrong with building it yourself, right? So while FC liked the workflow he showed you, we did a piece of work last year for a client who couldn't afford a commercial tool where we built a light version of that using open source uh, Python code. So there's nothing wrong with building it yourself. The important thing is that it is in a production environment so that you know that the version you built and went through governance is the version that's running. That's important. Um, a simple way we solve that when I was in when I was in Deloitte, we used to we used to take a standard code that we used to run on a lot of our clients' models when we wanted to audit them. We had a read-only directory just to show you how simple it can be. We had a read-only directory where we stored all our master code. And if you had a client and you wanted to use one of those codes, you copied it from the read-only directory so you knew it was the approved version of the code you were using. And we wrote a script that compared line for line the final code you ran with the read-only version, and that told us what you changed, so the manager could quickly review it. So not everything needs to be expensive, right? It's You've got to be pragmatic based on your budget. But if you're an enterprise and you can afford it, then having a tool which allows you to put models into production where the once you've built it, you press a button, it goes into production, often um, a lot of the vending tools will charge you per number of nodes on the server, for example. And what they will often do is they will keep a certain number of nodes, probably a lot of them, free for people to experiment, but then they will dedicate one or two nodes to run the production. So that as uh, your data scientist and your citizen data scientist play, they're not going to take away from production. The other thing to think about is whether you're, and, and this is why I mentioned earlier, you want your production to talk to um, how you're going to implement. You've got to think about whether it's a streaming use case, for example, credit card fraud. You've got to, in real time, decide whether you're going to approve a payment or not. Um, whether it can be an API, so um, just a, a tool where you can send a new customer applies for a credit card, you can score him and say, what's his score back? Or whether it's a batch process. Not everything needs to be real time. 80% of the life doesn't need to be real time. Can you automate batch processes? But basically, if you think through the workflow, as long as you put in place controls, um, it is definitely manageable and manageable at scale. Um, and most of the commercial software will automate the risk controls and the dashboards and the alerting for you. If you can't afford it, you can build a light version yourself. Um, we've done that a couple of times. Thank you. Uh, I've got a question at the back. Is on? Great. Tim Vera from Commotion. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, very insightful 
view of the world, I think, obviously reflects a lot of experience in the space uh, and probably a lot of scars as well. Um, <laughs> but thanks for that. I think, what, uh, Praveen, I just wanted to understand one bit in your early slide. You mentioned the use case capability right now. I think you probably touched on that, uh, uh, or both of you touched on that in, in various parts of your, um, of your presentation. Does that map onto the explore type phase? J I didn't quite understand what you, what you meant by that. Um, and I'll just ask a second question as well. Um, can you just outline a little bit about the kind of corporate structure you need to pursue to prevent a kind of 100 million rand hole uh, project before getting off the ground with this kind of thing? Um, obviously, uh, this is the big challenge for large organizations that want to create this capability. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Uh, I'll take the first part. I think the corporate structures is way more provincially. Um, so, in, in terms of the business cases or the use cases that we're talking about, right, is generally they'll start off with an, an a proof of concept kind of thing, which is the explore phase, right? Can that is there something in our data that can support whether we can predict churn early or not, right? Once you get to a point where that start, where the answer to that is yes, let's say for example. Um, as soon as we figured out that somebody's medical payments stopped, their likelihood of churning away from our current account is quite high. As soon as we've got that insight, right, then that business case from our side or the proof of concept then needs to be formed into a more formalized business case as the rest of the organization thinks of a business case. What we mean by that is we need to then figure out what's the process into production, what does it mean for customers, what is the impact on the end customer, and do all of that proper business case planning as the organization sees it. Whereas the, the exploratory part is more around sort of a particular use case and testing whether we can use our data to solve a business problem. Does, does that answer the question? Preven, you the second part. Um, thanks, FC. So just to add to FC's answer to the first one, the one thing that is we're seeing working much better in, let's call it, companies with a higher cadence of success is taking the time up front to have whiteboard sessions to just design think the question. Because um, I think defining the right question goes a long way to getting the right answer. And it doesn't have to be a long process, right? It could be as short as a two-hour workshop with the people who actually are faced with the question on a daily basis. So design thinking principles up front to just unpack what the question is and making sure you have the right question goes a long way to getting the right answer. If anyone's interested in further reading, um, just Google, there's tons of YouTube videos on lean startup principles. It just says try to get imperfect solutions out there and look at it and say, would this work, wouldn't this work? Experiment faster. Um, you notice I'm trying to stall time while I think of the answer to the second one. Um, in terms of org structure, so org structure for me, I'm slightly cynical on this and I'm not a purist. Um, I think org structure matters less than culture and matches less than um, execution capability, quality of execution. So I often get asked, should you have a centralized analytics team or a decentralized analytics team? And the honest answer is I've seen both work and both fail. Um, for me, the principles that are important at a micro level is the people who need to solve the problem should be in the room. The people who are faced with the problem should tell you whether the solution you're designing is going to work. That's the first minimum thing. So the business in the room I pointed to. But 
to your point, at an organizational level, there's a few important things that are critical if you're going to win. Um, and that is buy-in from the top. And buy-in from the top is not the CEO coming out often and saying, we're an analytics-driven company. Because quite frankly, after he said it the second time, no one believes him anyway. Um, it's got to be matched by action, right? So cloud is a wonderful thing. We all want to play with cloud. We all want an analytics sandpit. If your IT strategy doesn't allow you for data security reasons to use cloud, cloud doesn't exist. So the first thing is executive buy-in at the top to say, this is where we want to play. This is our risk appetite and what we are allowed to do. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you clever data scientists, you can play with cloud. Nothing goes into production and no personal data goes onto cloud. Go and play and come back in six months time and prove to us that it's worth it so that we can have a proper risk re reward conversation. So for me, the first one is getting executive buy-in. The second one is being realistic, right? Um, I've spoken to a large corporate who hired two graduates and they were going to change the universe, right? Not going to happen. Um, having some budget for headcount matters. Having some gray hair matters. Um, if people are going to work on experiments, how are they going to do that in their spare time? Because we all know how much spare time you have in a company. So culture of being able to free up people for the duration of an experiment is critical. And it doesn't have to be everyone, right? It could be three people, could be one person. It's, it's again appropriate based on the organization and the division you're in. But being able to create some actual human capacity is critical. Um, and then providing strategic direction, right? We can do lots of use cases. I mean, there's too many for us to do in our lifetime. We've got to choose the right ones. So consistency of direction at a strategic level is critical. So that, yes, we don't know what problem we're going to solve tomorrow, but as long as they aligned with the theme, we know we should actually consider it. Not do it, consider it. But having guiding principles is critical. So for me, if I were to put on the principles, executive buy-in, some capacity, and it doesn't have to be crazy capacity, consistency of principles. Direction will change tactically on a daily basis, but consistency of principles is critical. Having IT quants and business and somehow creating a forum for people to work together. And it could be as simple as three people, right? One from each team who talk to each other. But they can't be doing it by email, right? Co-location for me helps a lot with actually being able to deliver, especially when you're doing anything meaningful. You can do incremental stuff by email. You're not going to change the universe unless you sit together and talk to people. If you're going to wait for someone to reply to your email in three days, you've lost three days of productivity. No. So we've got two questions. Okay, we'll take two. these last two questions. No, I think Eric can go since he's my boss. <laughs> five for you. Five for you, Kevin. Um, uh, two questions. The one is skills, and the second one is governance. I just want to understand the governance portion a, get, um, a bit better. So the first question is, you're talking about citizen data scientists. That makes me think you, you go out in your company and find guys that's good with data science. But then your, your unicorn grid, he needs to have mass programming and domain skills. I'm getting a couple of people that say, yes, like data is cool. I want to work in your team. But he works in a call center. He hasn't seen a statistical handbook any, at any time in his life. How, have you found a way of finding them without sending them through the mathematical syllabus? Are there certain skills that you can pick randomly without doing such a rigorous test? And the second question is, you mentioned that once you've played, you set it through governance. Is that pure data governance, data quality tools? Or is it like a modeling thing 
where someone signs off the model. Just want to understand how you make it fit for use. Um, two great questions there. So the, f the first one, in terms of the citizen data scientist, and this is where it comes to having a toolkit that people can use and teaching them through the process. So take a guy in a call center, right? Um, you want to know what is the best time of day to call someone. So in the call center, the dialer has the data of all the past calls. So we know who we called, we know when we called them. That data hypothetically exists in a ClickView or a Tableau or a Power BI dashboard. If you've got a toolkit, and FC showed where you literally drag that data from the data cube onto a software package and literally choose did the person answer, did the person not answer as the predictive variable, and literally press run, it run this particular example that FC did was credit scoring, but equally you get gains charts, lift charts, and all you do is you train the people in the call center to say, define the question, did the person answer the call, didn't the person answer the call? Pull the data from your data cube, click view tableau, wherever it happens to be, and the underlying table actually. Drag it using the data extraction tool onto our statistical software. Choose yes, no as the predictive flag and literally press run. When it comes out, if that lift chart is looks materially above the straight line, come and bring it to us. If it doesn't, don't bring it to us. And that means that they can play, and when they're unsure, they can come and ask you. But once they've run that two or three times with different questions, they know. And then they bring it to you as this, the super user in the company, and you look at it and say, yes, there is a gain here or there isn't. And then if, it, if there is a gain, then we come to your second question, which is the governance. And the governance goes through all the layers of governance. So the data that they can access is subject to popular regulation and all the rest. Um, IT governance in terms of which tools you're allowed to use, not use. Um, and then putting it into production. So you take it through all the layers of governance, but you, the nice thing here is everybody gets to explore as long as they can drag and drop a data set and choose an outcome variable. And over time, you teach them. So within each business unit, you run training so that they create super users. And a super user is someone who knows how to use the data extraction tool and look at the gains chart. It's that simple. They don't have to learn everything. But then they can experiment. So we can't trust everyone to build a statistical model. What we can trust everyone to do is to play and bring us things that look interesting. Sorry, maybe we can. Um, I think we are out of time, uh, unless there's someone who desperately wants to ask a question. Great. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for your participation. I hope you enjoyed the, the presentation. Um, the next session will be uh, in the main ballroom, and that's a plenary session starting at 3.15.